On today's episode, I sit down with longtime concert promoter and music manager Austin Santiago. We chat about his journey breaking into entertainment, building Seattle's music scene, and working with such acts as Macklemore, Odeza, and Alan Stone from the start of their careers. Hope you enjoy. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, because we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. I just wanted to thank you so much for being here to chat on the First Act Podcast. It's really a pleasure to have the chance to sit down and speak with you, even though it's virtual. Totally, same. Thank you for having me. Before we kick it off, like I just... I noticed that your name is two different places. It's kind of like, you know, is there any significance behind that? Like Austin and Santiago. Yeah, yeah, no. So no, surprisingly. So I'm Puerto Rican. So my dad is Santiago is our last name. Austin was a name that my mother pushed for through that whole process. You know, I, I by no means am I not white passing, but I've always kind of identified as Hispanic and I, I feel Puerto Rican, you know, yeah. in my DNA. So I've always really identified with Santiago. And um, a lot of my friends called me Santiago or became a thing where they called me Oz Santiago instead of Austin. And so there's no significance to the actual places regarding it. But there's definitely some internal confusion over what my name is. Because <laughs> even my girlfriend calls me Oz, but my name's Austin. Um, and then certain people call me Santiago or certain people call me Austin. So it's just a, it's just nicknames, but, um, I think the geographic nature of, of that is, uh, accidental. Cool. I've had plenty of nicknames growing up and like, you know, one of them was Harry G, which is why I decided to use that for the podcast. I never had any say in my name. I'm like the last born in my family, like by far, you know, I'm just like the youngest and, uh, my siblings would like, I had chubby cheeks growing up and they would just call me chubby. And like yeah. that nickname stuck. <laughs> and, and like with friends, it was like Harry G. And my parents call me Carson. They call me Phil. I don't even know why. It's the way the nicknames work, man. You don't get to decide what they are. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really have to dig too deep, but I saw that you loved The Simpsons. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up on The Simpsons for sure. They've always been... I mean, think about how many cultural references they've made before it actually happened. You know, like they're they're... Is there any character on the show that you identify with? I mean, I don't think I like, I think I'm similar to anyone in particular. I really appreciate certain characters. Um, you know, you gotta love Marge. Marge is like probably brilliant beyond her years and really the DNA of that show. Barney Gumble, like bless his heart, you know, degenerate alcoholic, but such a sweet soul. Um, Everybody has a friend like that though, right? Yeah, you know, like he, and he doesn't like, he haven't, like, as far as degenerate alcoholics go, he doesn't really do anything wrong. You know, he's like not out like crashing his car into the neighbor's house. No. He just goes to Moe's Tavern and drinks beer and burps. Like, you can't really hate on him for that, you know? No, you can't. You know, I think we, we have elements of, of all of us that equal little pieces of every character, and that's why the show is really good. You can see your mischievous side in Bart, and you can see your, when you want to be basic side in, in Homer. So I don't know. I think Lisa is probably the, the best character. She's, she's deep. She's musical. She's, you know, she's, she's a very creative spirit on that show. Apu is dope. Like there's a lot of good people. 
I, I always really loved the horror episodes. Like my brother was really into The Simpsons. And the Halloween episodes were classic. Yeah, what were classic. they called? They were like uh, Treehouse, <laughs> Treehouse of Horrors, right? Yeah, there you go. Yep, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Those were always good. They did such a good job of like theming them and and like being consistent with them every year. And I remember one of them. They were they were in like a haunted house. They they, they moved into a house and the walls just started bleeding and like that gave me nightmares. Oh yeah. Yep. I remember that episode for sure. Yeah. Also, you gotta love that they switched up the intro. You know, like. That's something that like just takes extra effort that you don't need to do to make that show successful, but it kept you engaged. Brilliant show, which is why it's lasted so long. Yeah. All right. So cool. Are you ready to get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. Here is our guest today. We've got Mr. Austin Oz Santiago. Yeah. You know what? Actually, before we get into it, why don't you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, for sure. My name's Austin. I am... Kind of from all over, but spent a lot of my time in Seattle. Um, I live in LA now. My life has largely revolved around music, playing in bands when I was young, being a closet producer of beats, being a fan of music in general. But like when I moved to Seattle and moved to the Northwest, I started to realize like it was something I could do for a career. So I started booking artists on an indie level and then booking at a music venue and then booking a music festival. Um, and then that kind of evolved into running a media property where I was doing largely like brand partnerships and events for brands. And, um, you know, we did like some of our own properties, such as like Protest Fest, which is a multi-venue, multi-day event that raised money for certain charities by creating community. So we'd essentially have like LGBTQ bands that would be raising money for organizations that were true to their communities. I did a B battle for four years called called Beatmatch that was literally raising the kind of the beat scene in Seattle and, and empowering a lot of the people who were making music to kind of showcase their music and collaborate. You know, we had guests such as like Sango, Ryan Lewis, um, Big Wild, a lot of like really, really powerful people were getting to hear these young bands music and like give them feedback and stuff. So just been in music for a long time. A year ago, I transitioned to LA and was able to take over the role as general manager for School Night. School Night is um, a 10-year deep weekly event. And they decided to do this thing and it kind of snowballed into what, what I would consider one of the most well-respected industry showcases in the world. Uh, I always tell people we're like the new Music Friday of live music. Like we're like a sought after place where, where bands start. You know, we did Billie Eilish's first show ever at 14. We did... Dua Lipa's first show in the U.S. Uh, you know, this year alone, we had 23 artists that were nominated for Grammys that were alumni. So just getting in really early and supporting talent on their way up is kind of what we're known for. Um, and there's a really great community around that. If you come out, you'll see large agents and large entertainment managers and other successful artists. And just it's a really good community uh, here in Los Angeles and really a hub for a lot of people who are in, who are in that space. So... I've been very blessed to do a lot of like, I guess you could say artist discovery development. I also run an artist management company that I've started as a clothing company in 2005. It evolved to a production kind of like independent promotion company. And then somewhere in the process of that and watching some of the artists I was working with from uh, Macklemore to Alan Stone to Odessa kind of become larger. I realized that I needed to pivot more into management. So I had more time with the artists instead of being a promoter where you're like, you're only 
you're only there for one to 400 tickets and then they go to live nation uh, or whoever, you know? So I started to pivot into artist management and I've been doing that for about five years, pretty seriously. What I've, what I've found and what I know is like my favorite thing is developing talent, discovering talent early and helping them kind of reach their goals and both school night and my, my company build strong do that. So it's a, it's a good space to be in. Thank you so much for sharing that. We're definitely going to be touching upon different areas of your experience, tapping into, you, you said you've been in it for about 15 years now. It's so, just crazy. <laughs> yeah. And, I'm, and you know, I feel like, you know, when you look back on it, it's like, it's as, as if it just flew by, but then it's also like every single day is a grind. Totally. Yeah. And you never get like the thing about, I think artists or, or people in the creative industry or like gig economy is like, you'll get a big win and then it'll plateau. And then if you don't put in the work to hit the next level, you won't, you know? So it's this constant thing where like, you're always like, that was dope, but (laughs) I got to like, you know, figure out what's next. You know, it's, it's not easy, but it's definitely very fun. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be grilling you with with a bunch of questions about what you've done, how you got started, all of that kind of stuff. Like, I think that I mentioned to you before, this podcast really focuses on the hustle behind building a sustainable career in the arts. Yep. Um, And so we chat with tastemakers just like you to, to help newcomers gain industry hacks on how to get started, how they can grow their career organically, um, both as an artist, but also as someone working behind the scenes. Super glad to, to share any insight I have. Awesome. So over the last week or so, two weeks, are there any artists out there that you'd like to plug that you don't represent um, that have caught your attention lately? Yeah. I mean, I I would say the number one person that I cannot believe how successful she's going to be is Jensen McRae. Jensen, it's J-E-N-S-E-N-M-C-R-A-E. She's an LA-based singer-songwriter. She works with a company that... I met through school night and she played school night both we did for her first show was at our, our West Hollywood Soho house showcases. She played our Sundance set. Uh, we did a, a night at Sundance. I mean, she has two songs out and it's just like her potential is just undeniable. Um, she has a really good team behind her. She's part of Q and a, which is Troy Carter's company, uh, Lady Gaga's manager. Mm-hmm. Um, but she just writes authentic, lyrical, insanely talented stuff. Like she sounds like Tracy Chapman is the best way to like describe her voice. She has this range and this deepness, uh, but her songwriting and her lyrics are goosebump level. I just can't stop listening to her stuff. She has a song that came out called Wolves. She would be the number one person that I've been really excited about the last couple of weeks. Beyond that, you know, it's the, the artists I work with and my friends. That's a huge plug. Really appreciate that. And I'm sure she does as well. <laughs> Let's backtrack a bit. So you've been in the music business now for about 15 years. I see that you started in the Washington Cascadia live scene. You've held various roles in like community manager, as you were mentioning, as a talent buyer, as a producer, and really, as I describe it, as an entrepreneur. It seems that you've worked with so many talented individuals. What would you say your skill set is? So, I mean, I've, I've ran through this a lot because I feel like if you're not a if you're in the music industry and you're not able to play music in a way that makes you, you know, an artist, you kind of have an imposter syndrome sometimes. You're like, what is my role? Like, why am I here? And the thing that I've come across and the kind of my like my way of describing it is I feel like I'm I'm the cartilage in the knee surrounded by a bunch of talented bones. 
I'm really the squishy part that allows things to be in contact without hurting each other. I'm good at connecting people. I'm good at, you know, getting a deal done. I'm good at making sure that people are getting taken care of. But really at the end of the day, like I'm a connector. Uh, I'm a, I'm a networker. I'm intelligent enough to know I don't know everything, but I'm good at connecting people. And I have a really large network of people that I built relationships with and built um, opportunity with that has allowed me to kind of like keep my place, you know? Very cool. So you're the kneecap. That's a super connector to the rest of the body. I'm the squishy part of the knee. Yep. (laughs) What does a regular weekend look like for you? Moving to LA is very much like trying to get out, trying to support other people, trying to meet people, trying to go to mixers. It's LA is such a large city and there's so many people doing cool stuff here that I really want to do my due diligence of like, not just liking something on Facebook, but going out to a show and supporting it. And so I try to like make myself available. I try to, when people invite me to stuff, I try to show up. And I'm also trying to learn the scene here. Like I'm trying to go to venues. I'm trying to like see what is available here, you know, because it's just such a large opportunity for growth for anyone in our industry. There's so much going on that I'm just a sponge right now. And and to be fair, that wasn't that much different than when I was in Seattle because ultimately there I knew everyone, but I was still out supporting people. I was still out doing my own events I, I, t- I tend to be very visible and very approachable. Um, and I think that, again, like that connectivity and what I've always been good at is like getting to know people and being a resource. And so a large part of that is being part of the community. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think it was uh, Jonathan Daniel when I, when I worked at Crush Music. One of the biggest pieces of advice that he gave me is that 90% of his job is just showing up. 100%. You know, you, you, Especially you just, in a city like LA where it's like hard to get around. You know, like shit is 45 minutes away. So you're like, people like, like often bail. Yeah. And like, I've made a point to not, not bail, (laughs) you know? I haven't actually been out to Washington, but you know, seeing as it's not like, you know, it's still a huge scene, but it's not the same as LA. It's not the same as New York where it's like always, always, always like a million things happening it's cool that you're coming from a bit of a different background, a bit of a different vibe. And like, you know, not only are you coming from that vibe, like you really, you laid the groundwork and you built that community out there. And I champion that community to this day. I, you know, like I still consult with a ton of clients out there. Some of my management clients are out there. I'm trying to empower that community because it's, it's undervalued in a lot of ways. There's some people out there that if they lived here would be, way bigger than they are. Right. And so continuing that partnership of believing in the, in the art scene there and trying to make LA better for it. Did you grow up in Washington? No. So my dad is from New York. Uh, his parents are from Puerto Rico. My mom's from Wyoming, the Midwest. Interesting. And so apparently the, the story goes, my dad ran out of money on a road trip after high school in Casper, Wyoming, where my mom lived. And had to live there for the summer to get enough money to go back to New York. Met my mom, got married, whatever. The bulk of my youth was in Wyoming. I grew up basically like in Casper. I like how you just say the whatever part. You're like, yeah, like my dad didn't have money to get home. So he just like, you know, <laughs> set up camp in Casper, Wyoming. And sometimes you mom. gotta like, you know, whatever. Like then, you know, life just takes a turn. Let's not get, let's not get into the weeds of how I was born. Yeah. No, 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 no. no Stark was involved, you know? But yeah, so like, it's a really interesting thing because like, my mom is very, uh, 
left leaning, very, you know, very pro gay rights, very, very like liberal in every sense. And uh, growing up in a place like Wyoming, that's very different. It's a very red state. I hated it there for a while. <laughs> so like literally I had a U-Haul packed. I walked down the walked down the thing to graduate and then I left the next day. Moved to Bellingham, Washington, which is where I went to college. And I lived in Bellingham. And that was kind of like where I established being an adult. You know, like I was working, I was going to college and I started working at a Caribbean restaurant and they were like failing pretty terribly. And so we started throwing parties at the at the restaurant towards the end of the night. Like we'd move the tables nearest the front door away and tuck them away and start putting a DJ there. And uh, I started booking bands at that spot. And simultaneously, my roommate, her best friend was working for Planned Parenthood and they wanted to do a fundraiser. So they kind of like put me on to book the bands for it. Yeah. And largely it was me being obsessed with rap. I was obsessed with underground rap. Like in Wyoming, I was like, oh, Dr. Dre 2001. This is awesome. And then when I moved to Washington, I was like, what is hieroglyphics? Who is Zion? I really like got me hooked. And at the same time in the Northwest, we had the blue scholars starting to bubble up and common market and Macklemore. And so like, I became kind of the person that was like championing these artists in, in Bellingham. And I was booking all these acts and I was working for other venues, like putting up their posters and booking openers. And that was kind of my foray into it. And then I also had the Caribbean restaurant, which de facto became my venue because no one else was doing it. And I was booking, you know, emerging artists, but also like getting really big artists um, at a lower rate because we were like a B market. And yeah, it just kind of snowballed from there. And I ended up taking the reins at a venue called the Wild Buffalo, which is like a 450 cap room. And me and one of the owners booked everything there. And I mean, we, we, I was production managing, booking. I was there seven days a week, you know. As you have to be if you're running like a riveting nightclub or, or a concert hall in Wyoming, you know, you'd be listening to it's like the Chronic, right? Yeah. <laughs> so listening to Dre and and we, and ska and <laughs> and ska and, ska and punk rock. <laughs> and then my my best friend, uh, we were we were like big skate kids. Like I I ran a skate shop. I was like this the young kid like doing all like grip taping everyone's skateboards and like selling skateboards all day. And so my best friend was like. This, this kid Benson, who's like this dope, kind of like too fly for the time Asian kid and his family owned a Chinese restaurant. And we were just like him and I would just work and then just go skateboard constantly. Like in Wyoming, it would snow and I would wake up at 5 a.m. and go all the snow off of the sidewalk on our skate ramp. So even if it was snowing outside or even if it was like snowed outside, we could still skateboard. And uh, he turned me on to like, I'd be like, yo, have you heard this new Rancid? record or this new no effects record and be like yeah, yeah. that's cool but have you heard wu-tang Wu and i'm like what and i'm like no he's like or tupac and i'm like no what's that so that was before i moved but uh i think he kind of sowed the seeds of like understanding music outside of my current circle and wu-tang was probably my gateway drug to underground rap honestly because mm -hmm. they were so so different and so interesting at the time you know i was 17 16 whatever right like to hear odb you know, when you're a 16 year old kid in Wyoming was mind blowing. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super cool. And, and it's cool that you said that, you know, even if it was snowing outside, rain or shine, you'd go outside with a shovel, you'd shovel the walkway, make sure that you're able to actually pursue like your passion at the time, right? Which was skateboarding. Literally, we would every day, we would come back to my spot and all skate the ramp. 
And so like, what are some of like the difficulties that you've had to overcome as a talent buyer in your 15 year tenure? Like, I mean, I think, you know, starting off, like you don't, no one cares. Like you're just such small potatoes. And like, you know, when I first started, like I was basically just booking openers and I was, I started to, the only reason I was able to make it a job was because I was, I was putting a poster. I was like, Hey, can I hand out handbills? Can I put up posters? And so I started putting up posters for the venue I was working for. And I was better than anyone else. So I went to all the other venues. And I was like, Hey, like, I don't know what you're paying right now, but I'll do a better job. And so that became my first like job. And then, you know, by default of everyone being too busy, they book atmosphere or, or like a big, like a Wu-Tang, like Jizza. And they'd be like, Hey, like, who should we put on this to open? And I got really lucky where I got to a point where people started to come to me to kind of see what was the best regional support for stuff. And then those regional support acts started asking me like, can you book a headline show? Mm-hmm. And so through that like process, I started like understanding the the kind of like network of venues and the different opportunities and the Kalu, which is the Caribbean restaurant I was a chef at, ended up becoming like the de, the de facto like first step. We were in a tiny room, like maybe 150 tickets, and we started booking Macklemore, Blue Scholars, uh, Revolution, Collie Buds, uh, kind of like whatever made sense for the space simultaneously. This this guy Craig had loosely convinced this other venue, the Wild Buffalo, to sell the the share their share to him. So he was like, "Hey, like we got this new thing. Like, would you be interested?" And we had a really successful Wednesday night. So we immediately, when our venue shut, we just moved it to that that venue. And then I started taking over like a lot of the booking on weekends. But that was a much bigger cap, right? You said that was a four fifty cap instead of a one. Yeah, it was like four, four or five times as big. Wow. Um, but we were also young college kids, so we could text two hundred kids. You know, what I mean, like it wasn't even like necessarily like a draw thing at that point. We could book, we could book whatever, and put it on stage and get people out. Yeah. Um, but as the years went on, we obviously had to evolve and be good talent buyers and right. pay the right amount and get acts that had known draw and right you get into the weeds a little bit as far as cost and stuff and you know when you're in a b market it's a lot riskier because you're not selling pre-sale tickets at the same level you are in a in a major market we had what we called the throw up phase which was about 8 p.m to 11 p.m every night when we had a big guarantee that we were like hopefully people come and <laughs> by the time 11 hit you knew if you're going to lose your ass or if you're going to be good to go especially if you're booking hip-hop because that shit starts late Late. Yeah. Well, Bellingham starts late because it's a college town where everyone's broke and they go drink at cheap bars till 11. And so we always had a late crowd there. We'd always have to push agents to be like, hey, like we can't have the headliner go on at 10.30. The headliner's got to go on at like 11.45 if you want everyone to be there. My first hip hop show that I booked was uh, was actually in Montreal. I just, I booked artists that I knew can draw some, you know? Um, it was same deal, like 120, 130 cap. I, I had the, I had the artists get there cause it was really a bar that like had a very tiny stage Yeah, with like a bunch of like, uh, they're called VLTs here. They're like slot machines. <laughs> like, they're, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like, there'd be like the regular crowd who would come in and I just kind of like let them kind of trickle in without paying, paying a cover. I had all the hip hop artists helping me move tables around, move the chairs to the side, set up the stage. And like, this was our first show. And like, I had an MC, we had like a freestyle rap battle in it. Like, it was just like, as like a little intermission, like it was cool, but I was terrified that we weren't going to bring anybody. 
And there was one artist that I met who it was the day before the show. He's like, man, if you give me like five minutes to open the show, I'll bring people. And I was like, can you bring like 35 people? <laughs> and he's like, done. And I, I was done. like, you know what? He's not going to, but it's the hustle and the grind. And like next day he shows up, he showed up with like his parents, his cousins, his like extended relatives, like everybody came for this guy and like he performed for like four minutes and <laughs> but, but he sold nearly 40 tickets for my show and i was working in the underground hip-hop scene like you needed to have a lot of backbone and you know a little bit of elbow grease to really squeeze your way in how did you do that so like literally all i did was i went to college i started listening to stuff i started seeing the stuff that i was listening to pop up around town in spaces i was not old enough to go to yet Mm -hmm. I would go stand outside and listen. When I turned 21, I started going to everything. And I realized pretty quickly I couldn't afford to go to everything. So what I did is I would show up early. I would watch who was putting it on, who was talking to the bands, who was setting stuff up. And then I'd go up to them and I'd just be like, hey, like, what's your name? And they'd be like, oh, XYZ. And I'd be like, cool. Uh, are you doing this show tonight? And they'd be like, yeah, I'm the promoter or I'm whatever. I'm like, awesome. You know, I really love this band. Thank you so much for bringing them here. I'm a college kid. I'd love to get involved in any way I can. You know, I, I cook at this restaurant. Maybe I could like bring some people out from the restaurant. Just keep me posted, whatever. And I'd build like low key relationships. And then literally basic as, as it gets. I was literally being like, let me hand out handbills for you. Let me put up posters. And then that led to a point where... Just volunteering was, work, right? I, oh yeah, I did. I did probably a, a solid year before I ever made money. Um, I also was in college. I was in a community college at the time, and I started doing events at the community college. So I accessed budgets through that. Started booking my own stuff. But there was points like talking about hardships. There was points, you know, two years, three years after I started, where I had all the money I had out in uh, deposits, and like if one show didn't return if people didn't turn out i couldn't pay them like i would have to have like friends on backup like hey if this goes bad tonight i need you to like give me a thousand bucks right a lot of the early stuff was like just doubling doubling down on believing in you know having a space that i thought was underutilized like i was the only one who was like that passionate about that music at the time and as i evolved like my music was never my music taste was never just rap or just hip-hop that was like kind of the space that got me into the, the venue side and the promotion side. And as I evolved and I grew like and had the opportunity, I started booking everything. So, you know, my proudest moments were like booking Charles Bradley three times or booking Little Dragon before anyone cared, like not necessarily rap. Um, and to this day, all the musicians I've managed have come from, you know, the indie electronic realm or the R&B soul realm. That's kind of, I think, where my, my heart lies as far as music. But there's no doubt that hip-hop was uh, my intro and will always be very important to me. There's a lot to be said about your reputation with the community in Bellingham. People knew that you were honest and you had integrity and that you were determined. That speaks volumes. Whereas, you know, if you screw over one person one time, that's all you have. It's sort of like if you lie, you lose all your credibility. Oh, 100%. I don't think I don't think I would be where I am right now if I didn't just if I wasn't consistent. Right. Because at the end of the day like I haven't had a meteoric rise. I don't have like a a Billie Eilish client. 
But what I do have is a, a massive network of people who have seen me be consistent, seen me be hardworking, seen me be someone that they can rely on to give them the straightforward opinion for 15 years. I'm sure the hard work I'm putting in, we're going to have some moments. Uh, and I have had many moments where incredible things have happened like instantly. But really, at the end of the day, the success I built was based on consistency. Let's fast forward for a sec. So you booked Odessa's first tour. Uh, I tour managed their first tour. So actually, my history with them is uh, Harrison and Clay went to Western Washington University in Bellingham. And my friend who ran a clothing store was like, hey, Harrison in my department has this this group, Odessa. Check this out. And he sent me the, the record, um, my friend Corey Warren. And I was just like, this is incredible. <laughs> like, I love this. We connected because of that. I was booking this band Beat Connection. Uh, Beat Connection's a Seattle-based electronic, but like it turned into a live band that was doing really well. They were assigned to Mochi Mochi Records and they were assigned to Flower Booking, which later it became Windish and then Paradigm. We'd done a couple shows with them. It had been pretty successful. And he was like, cool, let's book this. Who should we open? And I was like, hey, this band at Odessa, it's like brand new, but I really like it, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, how many tickets they worth? And I'm like, I don't know, but it's worth it. And I sent him the music. And Jay is still their agent to this day. Very jealous of, of his trajectory on that. But uh, that's the only time I've ever made it into Polestar was Jay referencing um, me introducing him to Odessa. Um, and yeah, so we were just very early. We're the first, first show they ever did. I both... He credits you for that. Because if you didn't exist, then if, you, if your dad had enough money to go back to New York City... Way, way, way back and didn't have to spend a night in Casper or have to move to Casper. This never would have happened. Yeah, it's really interesting because like I absolutely don't take credit for Odessa, but it's I'm definitely a part of their story. You know, like I definitely was the person introducing their agent and I was definitely the person that booked their first mini shows and I got a tour part of the, uh, my friend Chris was tour managing for them and for Shlomo and he left to go do Shlomo at um, Coachella and so he was like, hey, would you do this tour? And I was like, yeah, for sure. So it's really exciting to see. That was their first headlining tour, not their first tour ever. And yeah, it was just really interesting to see that whole thing kind of progress. And, you know, they weren't the first time that I experienced that. Like I was, I used to DJ for most of Macklemore's regional shows and I booked him, but he played my 21st birthday. So, you know, 35, so 14 years ago, he played my birthday and he played my birthday party three or four times for free. Um, we had that kind of friendship and we did a bunch of sh sold out shows with them at the, at the venue I worked at and uh, just, you know, built some relationships with some people that I saw that their kind of trajectory and yeah, I saw, around and I saw that Malcolm Moore names you the mayor of Bellingham or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did this thing for a while where he would, it was like part of his routine. He would just be like, shout me out and then say I was the mayor and then randomly everyone would be like, Oh, stood. <laughs> and I would just be like terrified, mortified and embarrassed. Just like, Stop. that's just not who you are. You're like, I don't want to be the center of attention. I'm just, I'm I mean, just, it's just behind the scenes. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a little bit much, but I think that's why I did it. Just kind of to mess with me, you know, but yeah, yeah. It's a huge cred. And honestly, it's, it's amazing to see, you know, what a lot of the, like a lot of people didn't know these artists back when you were working with them. And now you've seen a lot of them explode. I remember when I booked, Macklemore's first theater show. It was like his manager, Zach, who Zach used to be a, a agent at the agency group. And he was like a big, a big, you know, hip hop agent. He was smart, like good at his job, New York based. And like 
all of a sudden Zach quits the agency group, moves to Seattle and starts managing Macklemore full time. And at that time he was like, yeah, like, you know, we've done, we've done 20 shows at the Buffalo, which is 500 caps, something like that. So many. And he's like, yeah, like we need to move this up. Like, what do you have? And I was like, I mean, we don't have anything like we're a college town. So I started looking into like ice rinks and like theaters and like we ended up settling on the Mount Baker theater, which is 1500 cap. And I was like worried, like we're jumping from 500 to 1500. And Zach was like stone cold. He's like, Oh no, like you're This is going to sell out in a month. Like you're fine. Like we put the 1500 cap show on sale and it sold out way quicker than I could have ever imagined. And that's really cool. Especially that you were, you were instrumental in making that happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, absolutely right place, right time, but a lot of it has to do with just caring and being involved, you know, being active and being a person who stuck my neck out. It allowed me to get put in those positions. Do you believe in luck? Yeah, I believe in luck for sure. I think that like, you know, what is the luck meets opportunity kind of situation? Like it's about setting yourself up to win. It's about caring. It's about providing for other people and being a, a part of a community. Well, I think that you make your own luck for sure, at least to a certain extent, right? Definitely. In, uh, in 2011, you took on a role as being a talent buyer and, and handling some marketing for Summer Meltdown Fest. Yeah. For people that don't really know, Summer Meltdown Fest is the largest locally produced camping and music festival in the Pacific yeah. Northwest. Yeah, so it's definitely, it's very homegrown. They started it like backyard style. Uh, I think they're on their like 15th year, 20th year. It's old now. Like it's been around forever. Yeah, it's been around since like 2000 or something like that. Yeah. 20 years. That makes sense. So there was a band, um, what I would consider a jam band that started it. And it was very much like their community coming out local bands only. And, uh, due to our relationship at the venue, a lot of the bands involved with that festival were playing our venue. So we became friends with them and, uh, Craig Jewell, the owner, co-owner of the, the venue and I were like working together on all the venue stuff. So it was kind of a natural thing, even though we negotiated it separately, Craig and I both started at the same time, kind of helping that festival grow. It was interesting because the three years I was there, we took a very hard left. We were booking like Starfucker and Alan Stone and like more indie stuff, you know? And I think before that was largely like funk and jam and like kind of like... Something like you know, bluegrass too, no? Bluegrass, yeah. Bluegrass yeah. and... Because I, I know that they've... I've actually, like I said, I haven't been out west for that festival, but um, I saw that like Minus the Bear was on there, Beats Antique, Elephant Revival, like, you know, plenty of bands. Yeah. Like, that. like a very, very cool vibe. Yeah, those are all years that I was part of the talent buying team. I think the first year we did it, we we got... Um, the headliner was Beats Antique, and then I think it was Alan Stone the next year, but... I think it was what, like 2013 or something like that. Yeah, I think so. Right. Yep. And you, you were there until they sold to AG? Yeah. So I was there like, I think 13 to 16. And then I left, I, I ended up uh, quitting about a month after the festival that year. Uh, but yeah, it was a cool event. You know, I think that we all grow and we all change. And I felt really excited about what you accomplished while I was there. Like I booked, Odessa was like line number nine, you know, they were super down there when, and that was kind of my, my role was more. It's, it's, it's funny to think of that now, right? <laughs> so weird. There's so many of those moments that I can think of back, like people I worked with, like bottom of the totem pole at the time who were killing it. But, uh, I think, yeah, my role was always in, and continues to this day. I was always like mid tier talent and then local, like, like Craig would be putting out the big offers for the headliners. 
And my role was like, how do I make the middle like as juicy or juicier than the headliners? A little bit more fun doing that, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I mean, love the idea of having a big budget and putting out, you know, 50K for whoever, but it's also really exciting to be able to like negotiate with people who you know are going to be up next and give them a couple, a couple thousand more than they would expect and like see them a year later, like prove it, you know? Yeah. Like we also and, had like, and then they'll always remember that you were the guy that helped them out. Yeah. A lot of my relationships have been that. Like I've always been kind of a guy who went out of my way to support people before anyone else cared and put money in their pocket, you know, down the road. They remember that. I love that. And uh, you know, I'm sure they love that too, because that's what really what the music industry is all about, you know, like helping, helping out the guys that no one's believing in just yet because everybody will start off as a nobody at some point. Dude, I have so many emails. Like I have Leon Bridges, for instance, his manager, Zeke. I was like, Hey, like, I really like, would love to have this. It was like one song on SoundCloud. I'd be like, Hey, like, I'd love to get this guy to Washington. He's like, Oh, he's not touring yet. He's, he's based in Texas. Like, we'll let you know, you know, we had an email thread like that with, uh, with Billie Eilish's team, like like, trying to bring her out to New York when we were booking at Webster hall. And like, she wasn't doing shows yet. And exactly. You said you got her first show, right? Yeah. I think her first show ever was at school night. Right. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it definitely was like one of her first shows, if not her first show. Really cool. Yeah. Um, so during your time at summer meltdown and, and when you were booking gigs, did you ever have interns? I did actually, it's actually funny. So this band just played school night a couple, maybe a month ago. They're called plastic picnic. Uh, they're Brooklyn based. They're four dudes all from the Northwest. Um, and the lead singer of that band, Emil was my intern. And uh, one of my other interns is like an ops person. She's like, she was doing a ton of stuff during Grammy week and she's killing it. A lot of our listener base are people that either work in entry level jobs or work in different roles in the music industry. But also we have listeners that are in high school or in college that are aspiring to work in the arts. And so I, what I want to know is did any of them do anything substantial during their time that got your attention? The same thing I did, which is showing up, like being present. If you're not old enough to go to the show, then commenting on stuff, sharing stuff, sending messages to people you respect, you know, just being part of the community and, and letting them know that you're there and you want to be part of it. And just showing up is such a big part of it. Like everyone, especially on the internship side, no one expects you to know everything. All you got to do is be willing to learn and be proactive. As long as you're there and you're willing to give it a shot, people will give you a shot. The important part about social media is like, don't use it as a, don't use it as a megaphone where you're just yelling about yourself into it. Use it as a telephone where you're communicating and you're, complimenting and you're giving people feedback like it should be conversational and the more you do that the more people are going to respect you you're talking a lot about social media i'm noticing now and you know social media might not have been as huge a thing when you were just getting started you worked for a little while with with the do sites right like do to six and yeah uh, i was a i was a general manager of do to six for three and a half years I can only imagine that had a huge digital strategy role a lot of social media brand acquisitions community partnerships right yeah. Um, so that was huge. What I mean, the learning curves there. Totally. First of all, going from like an indie, indie venue where you basically have 900 hats and you're don't have any oversight, uh, going from that to like a, a national brand with owners and team underneath you was a transition where I felt like a lot more responsible for the success of everyone. 
Like I had to, to prove it to my bosses and I had to employ my employees and I had to report to a national entity. Um, but I think overall, like super, super beneficial because what I realized in that whole thing is like how to talk to brands, how to present ideas to brands, how to execute events that weren't just a concert on my own. So the cool part of it was like creative ideation. Like I could go to a brand that was like, Hey, we have X amount of dollars and we're trying to do something in Seattle. You know, let's do a secret concert where we don't tell anyone who's playing and we book a bunch of big artists. And like when we did that with Goose Island, everyone was like chatting about it on the internet. Like who's playing, who's playing, who's playing. And like someone tweeted at Macklemore and was like, are you playing? He's like, Nope, not me. And then someone's like, Oh, Des is playing. And then like, they weren't playing, but they came and hung out. So the day of people were like, Oh, Des is here. They're definitely playing. And like, it was just like this funny, like it was cool to see the the chatter about that idea. And like, you know, Organic like I said, hundred percent. And like, that's where the, the whole idea of the B battle came from is like, Hey, like, B-Battles are traditionally a rap thing where it's like hip hop producers and right. let's create one that's not that, that's like every genre of music. And it became this kind of catalyst for a, a massive community of beat makers in Seattle. How do you think it would have been if you decided to go to LA after you graduated college versus going now, which when I, I guess you're in your thirties, right? Yep. It would have been a lot better now. <laughs> it would have been a lot harder then, you know? Yeah. Like I feel like, I feel like the, 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 the difference is like, if I went then, like there's a chance I would have given up because I didn't have the experience. I didn't have the shops. I didn't have the relationships where now I have such a robust infrastructure that like no one can tell me anything and no one can make me quit. You know, like I've been through the thick and the thin and I know how to do what I do and I believe in myself. So um, I'm confident that I'll be fine. Um, and I don't know if I would have had that same confidence, you know, fresh out the gate. What sort of advice can you offer people who are looking to take that plunge, take their first steps in a major market like New York or LA? Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's about one or the other. So you either have to build what you're working on to a point where it's undeniable and people can't deny your ability. And that's point part A, but part B of that is be willing to invest the time to know that it's not going to be easy, or you have to go somewhere and start at the bottom and grind it out and like show up for free and intern and you know do whatever you got to do to meet the right people but at the end of the day like it's always about networking right so i my thought process is like networking from a position of power where you live and getting the connections through your ability locally that transitions you to a city a lot softer is preferable but the other side of that is you can just go there and not know anyone fight it out and both are capable of working. Um, both people, you know, people have succeeded on both paths. But for me, it's like let's let me build something that's tangible and and teachable and provable. So when I go there, I have some ground to stand on. Just before we wrap it up, I'm curious. Um, you know, you've been in this for for quite a while now. We know that the music game has changed drastically. Like what what is different from what you first started, and what's the same? You need to make music that people connect with, and you need to be authentic to your community. Like at the end of the day, like streaming is so important now versus CDs, but you know, 30% of your fans make up 70% of your streams. So yeah, I think that's one thing that's remained consistent is like, you'll, you'll, no matter how many fans you have, you have fans that are very diehard and make sure you own, own that and give them opportunities to continue to champion you and continue to amplify you because they're ultimately going to be a big part of your success. That goes back to your original point. 
you know, like when you were talking about it a little bit earlier about how more than anything, more than just like recording new music or doing a live show, you want to be connecting with your fans, right? And there's so many ways that you can be doing that. So that would be the thing that I would say has changed the most is in, in a lot of senses, you used to be able to just make a record and tour. Um, we've learned very, very rapidly over the last three weeks that you can no longer rely on one income stream as an artist. So one thing that I'm focusing on with my team, and I think that's something is, is a bigger conversation in general is how do you diversify your, your ability and your income to make sure that you're successful. So some of my artists were focusing on songwriting. Some of my artists were focusing on licensing. Some of my artists were focusing on touring, whatever. But like, I think at the end of the day, you know, treating this as a holistic business where there's a lot of different ways to make it monetize it and not feel like you're being, um, not, you're not sterilizing it. It's still art. And I think that, you know, that's where we're at is we're like, how do we continue to make art that's pure and true, but also make sure that we're not completely out, you know, on an Island if something like this happens. Right. Um, and I think that's a general thing like digital, presence is so important. Licensing is important. Um, monetizing content, knowing your kind of social channels. Like if you're great at YouTube and you can monetize that great, just being aware of all the different things that are available for you and out there and, and making sure you're utilizing them. Cool. Um, last question, I swear. So <laughs> what sort of advice or guidance would you give to 15 year old Oz? Man. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, by no means perfect. I think that I walked the right path, which is, I think that stay true to you. Don't get depressed. Don't get, don't beat yourself up. As long as you're authentic, as long as you're honest, as long as you put energy towards things you believe in and you lead with love, then everything will be fine. I really appreciate you. And I'm sure all of our listeners appreciate you being on the first act podcast today. Thanks appreciate so you much having me, man. Thank you. I hope this has fun. been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. So that's the interview. Just wanted to say thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode. If we mentioned something you liked that stood out to you, or if you just learned something new, we want to hear about it. Please leave us a review on Apple or any of our other socials. Take care, stay safe, and have a wonderful day.